This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's Q&A. It's a very dark, rainy morning on Thursday, so hopefully I had enough time for everybody's questions to come in. Uh, but I had to record early because of a whole bunch of stuff happening this weekend. So hopefully the rain won't be too loud and there'll be some fun questions. But let's jump in and see. First up, Eric Fox wanted to know if it's okay to use a Japanese Saturn on US power, but then they heard my answer to this question in supporter Q&A number 158, so I just wanted to skim through it real quick. Open your Saturn and take a look at the power supply. Obviously, unplug it from the wall while you're looking at the power supply, but if you see on the PCB that it says 100 to 140 volts or 120, then sure. Um, some might even say a wider range of voltage, but if you have no voltage writings at all, or if it says 100 volts only, then you need a voltage converter or an internal power supply mod. I don't like to do those internal power supply mods unless you absolutely know one that's in stock and high quality. And usually just recapping it is all most people need, except when you're talking about region differences. That's when it would be a good idea to do it. So yeah, I would just first check the writing on there and then kind of decide what you want to do. If you had a whole bunch of Japanese consoles, then running it through a power converter might actually be the easiest and most cost efficient way. But if it was only the Japanese Saturn, then there's probably a few other cheaper options. Weijlo stumbled across a video where somebody showed a whole bunch of different consoles hooked up to multiple TVs in one setup, and they were curious about how power would work in stuff like this. They wanted to know how I do it with the CRT wall and, uh, and how I would suggest other people do it. So much like the conversation last week of power conditioning versus UPSs, I have one power conditioner hooked up to that setup. Now, I strongly doubt, I haven't looked up the specs, but I strongly doubt one power conditioner would be able to handle everything, but I never have everything turned on. And to be perfectly honest, I don't think I need that setup here. I think as CRTs get swapped around and stuff, maybe eventually I will. But for my current setup, never more than two CRTs on at the same time and a stereo, which is, you know, a higher powerful Anthem MRX 510 stereo. So, you know, it's kind of a powerful one. Uh, and then something like a DVD player, VCR, whatever, one video game console. So for me, I just run a whole bunch of different power strips with on-off buttons, with hard on-off buttons. So, you know, it, when you press the button, it completely kills the power to the ports. And I only turn on each power strip as needed. And I just leave the power conditioner on all the time, just as is. And for me personally, that works out the best because you turn on one power strip that now enables eight more things to be powered on. So it's not like every time I go to flip on these powers, uh, these devices, I have to flip on power twice, you know, like some surge projector behind and then the power in front. Basically, whenever I want to watch a movie, listen to music, or just uh, maybe play a Nintendo Switch or something, one button. And then if I want to add cassette player and VCR, and it's another one. And then if any other consoles that I have on the bottom, it's a third. But I never need all of them on at the same time. So while that sounds 
overly complicated. It's really like, okay, I want to go play a retro video game console. Turn this strip on, turn this strip on, set the input to Super Nintendo, and I'm done. So that's how I like to do it. I really like the hard cutoffs, just because if lightning ever strikes exactly my power box, then it's completely disconnected. And while, of course, there's power arcing and a whole bunch of other stuff that I'm sure my fellow nerds are thinking when I said that, it's one more precaution. And then for the really expensive monitors, I leave those not only powered off, but unplugged unless I'm using them just for one more safety removal. Uh, but if you want something that everything's powered on at once, what I would really like to look into are power strips I've seen that have soft on and off for each port. So then you would have to program in some kind of setup where, like if you had an Extron Crosspoint 32 by 32 and uh, in a couple of those networked power strips, you could probably program it to say, you know, Super Nintendo on with the stereo and it turns the power jacks of everything needed on at once. I think that would be neat, but that's overkill for now, for me at least. So if you want to go crazy, look into those. Um, but I have no experience in them yet, so I couldn't tell you which one's a good one and which one isn't. But if anybody knows, please share in the comments. I I'd love to find out because I think it would be very cool to have a setup like that. But the short version of what I just said, I just make sure that everything's run through a power conditioner, not more than a reasonable amount of components are turned on at the same time, and everything's plugged into a power strip that's always off unless using. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Inmate 302 wanted to follow up with a question from last week about getting a PC into a consumer-grade Sony Trinitron CRT that has an RGB SCART input. They confirmed that, yes, while it does have a SCART via composite input, it also has an RGB SCART input, meaning that this will work fine for them. So their question is, any reputable vendors you could recommend for the GBSC? Um, there was one I saw floating around. I can't remember if it was AliExpress or eBay, but it looked really nice. And I haven't tested it yet. So, I mean, maybe it's held together with glue and spit. I don't know. But it looked really nice and it looked well done. Um, the GBSC AIO is now open sourced, so you could build your own, build your own, but I don't think they sell them completed anymore. And there were a few others out there. Um, there was one from Chipnetics Computing on Tindy that I thought was pretty good. Um, I don't think I tested that personally, but there were a lot of very detailed pictures that made it seem very reputable. Um, but I, I think I would just kind of look around and try to find anybody selling one in any group you're a part of, any modder that you know, or, or you could try yourself, but it always goes back to my suggestion of if you really just want to mod one thing, are you really going to buy a nice soldering iron, some good solder, some flux, maybe even a desoldering braid or equipment? Like you'll end up spending a lot more than you would for one or two items than just going to a modder. So I would kind of just try to find any anyone that you know of, but maybe check the things that I just mentioned. And two, any S-Video solutions you could talk about, wink, wink. Um, no, there's no... There's nothing that I know of um, other than you would have to downscale to RGB and then go from RGB to S-Video. 
And if you're doing that, there's a bunch of things that are already out that I've talked about and a few more things coming. So, but those were all pretty open and honest. I think I talked after the last Mr. Livestream about that, how Ivory from Retro Castle was going to send me another prototype. Uh, and at least two other people had talked about that too. So it really just depends on what you need. If you want it right now, the Ashenworks one, I thought was excellent. It's expensive, but you get what you pay for, right? There's a whole bunch of different things and options on it, depending on your needs. But I think there is a cheaper one coming that's just a little bit more direct with that. So um, really up to you. Do you want it right now? Ashenworks or uh, Linux Bot 3000 on eBay, both of those are great, especially if you're using a GBSC, because then you can go VGA out from there to the VGA in of the Linux Bot one. But if you end up with something that has SCART, maybe you should look into uh, Ashens as well. Actually, Ashens also has DSUB and RCA inputs. So really, it, it all depends. Do you want one in and one out, or do you want multiple in only one at a time and multiple out uh, a couple at a time? It's really up to you. But, you know, luckily, there's a lot of good options for you. So I would just kind of, you know, take a step back and see what you need as a whole or what you could use for multiple uses. Old Kid had an idea for taking one triad power supply and building a DC switch box so you could plug the power supply into that and then have pigtails built or made so that you could switch with a rotary switch to power each one of your consoles individually with that. But they were also worried that some of those rotary switches engage the next pin just so slightly as it's turning. So technically two things would be connected at once. And that is the only uh, that is the only real warning I would have for that. Other than, of course, make sure the power supply is rated for all of them. Don't put like a five volt Neo Geo in the mix there because you would definitely blow that out or like handheld consoles or something. Uh, you know, make sure the PSU really will work with all your consoles. But yes, that would be an issue. And I don't know how dangerous that is. And for me personally, that's one of those things where I just wouldn't want to risk it because even if it's one out of a million chance, what if you're that million? However, there is a pretty easy solution. Get yourself a hard on off switch. Um, they have some AC style ones that are pretty nice looking that you could just wire whatever to. You could get the like airplane toggle switches, like whatever you want, but just get a hard on off switch, turn it off, turn your rotary, turn it back on. That completely eliminates all issue. It's way less work than unplugging and replugging individual power supplies, and it should make it so that you don't have anything to worry about. The only other thing I would recommend is you never know what these switches are going to do to power. And the best example I can give is those little pigtails that people used to try to use with Mr. that had a power switch in it that pulled just enough power so that some things wouldn't work right if you used it. So they did eventually determine one that doesn't do that. But my suggestion would be that if you say that, okay, I did the math and the maximum power I would ever need is 1.5 amps, get a 2.5 amp or a 3.5 amp because you're talking a few dollars difference and it's not like you could over amp something. Amps are there if needed. So you could take a 12 volt, 1 million amp power supply and plug a 12 volt, you know, one amp device into it. And that's totally fine. It's not going to send a million volts. Uh, it's only going to draw from what it needs. 
But if you have a situation where your console needs 1.5 amp, you have a 1.5 amp PSU and that rotary switch, hard on off switch that I talked about kind of draws from that. Now you're underpowering your console. So luckily though, even though this was a kind of a longer answer than I expected, it's a very easy answer. Add a switch, get a power, get one of the beefy triads, the 2.5 or 3.5 amp ones, spend an extra five bucks on that stuff and you're good to go. So great idea. Um, if you don't mind, if you're cool with this, uh, post pictures somewhere, post here, post on social media, whatever, because I'd like to see how that looks when you're done with it. Or if you're not into social media, don't bother. It's a shit show anyway. But if you're on it, I'm certainly curious to see what it would look like. Retro Music Dan said they wanted to chime in on the audio switch question from last week. Would something like the Mackie Big Knob Passive Switch be what you're looking for? They use one in their music setup to switch between inputs, outputs, and mono or stereo, and picked it up after checking some testing and teardown on a YouTube video. So I got to admit, Dan, I had no idea what you were talking about. I had to go back and listen to the question last week that I believe you're referencing Jim's question where they had a Dolby setup that they were trying to figure out mono versus stereo. And then I mentioned how I wanted a, a switch for my studio monitors. If that's what you're talking about, I'm looking for something way dumber. Uh, at the moment, I did that setup, by the way, and it was awesome. I watched Tron 3D with 7.1 surround. It was exactly what I had hoped for, even though the studio monitors aren't as um, fun to listen to as those Ascend Acoustics, as back uh, surround channel speakers, you know, the, the last two that you would use. It was awesome. So uh, that worked. However, I just manually unplugged and replugged. The only other thing is, though, I've seen switches that add interference. And that's what I do not want to do. So, you know, in my current setup, having to manually unplug and replug isn't the end of the world. Having a quick toggle switch would be great. But those Mackie big knobs were like 70 bucks each when I looked them up, unless I, I'm thinking of something else. So what I was really thinking of is like a switch with two quarter inch or inputs, one quarter inch output, and then just a way to switch between them in like a a generic case, you know, one of those like plastic cases you could buy in bulk online or something. Um, so thank you for the suggestion, but I was looking for something much dumber than that. Your suggestion looks kind of fancy and something that I would use in other things, but not quite that. But if anybody's looking for weird audio switches to be able to do stuff, check out the Mackie big knob that Dan suggested and see, maybe that'll fit somebody else's needs, but I just need a more, a more basic one for me. Plutonio said they have a question regarding CRTs, heat, and air conditioning. Temperature is quickly rising where they live, and it's becoming difficult to sit in front of their space heater of a CRT without turning on air conditioning, but that got them thinking. Let's say they turn on their monitor and play for a bit, the monitor becomes hot, and then they turn on the air conditioner so the temperature goes down. Do I think this extra change in temperature, other than the normal heating up and cooling down, will hurt the tube or electronics over time? They might be overthinking this, but they really want to avoid to put any unnecessary stress on older electronics as they become older and older. So that's an excellent question. And my answers to this are always very similar in that if you've decided that this is a monitor that you want to use, then use it. It's exactly like classic cars in that some people spend an insane amount of time and money on a car 
and never drive it. They put it in their, you know, enclosed trailer. They drive it to a car show. They put on white gloves and push it out and into the car show. They only turn it on when the judges are rating if it still runs or not. And if that's you, that's fine. I, I could understand something as a work of beauty. And that's how I treat some of those monitors back there, to be honest with you. Like that that gorgeous little Brian Vega algal. I don't know if it's on. Nah, it's not in this shop. But I get it. I totally understand that. However, on the flip side, if you're going to use it, use it. But there are precautions that you could take. So letting the CRT heat up and then cool off when the AC is on is just part of normal operation. And while it might lower the length of time that it lasts, it's not something that I personally would obsess over. But take just basic steps. So don't place your CRT directly in front of the AC unit so that it gets really hot and then really cold. Um, don't plug them into the same power outlet if possible, just so every time the AC compressor kicks on, it doesn't do that little brownout thing because uh, you don't want to just slightly drop the power to anything or use one of those power conditioners that I always talk about. So those are all just my opinions rooted in some kind of technical fact there as well. But I just, I do have that strong opinion on is the thing that you own a work of art that you're preserving or is it something that you're using? And I'm kind of going through this. I have an old truck that I just like. I just picked it up uh, over the winter time and it's a 2000 Ford Ranger and it's not classic yet. But like I started really going in and detailing it. If uh, if you're into that stuff, check out Ammo NYC's YouTube channel. You, warning, you might get hooked. <laughs> but you know, I I started to go around and say, all right, well, I'm gonna maybe I'll detail it. Maybe I'll start to really buff it. And then I realized, like, I love the fact that if I came out of a store and somebody dinged it, I wouldn't even know. I don't worry about it. I keep it clean, but I just I don't obsess over it. So I love that I have this thing that's like. You know, before I I know it, it's going to be called a classic truck, probably another 10 years. But I don't worry about, you know, oh, I, what if I scratch it? Oh, I don't want to put stuff in the bed of the truck. What if it dents the bed? Like, no, I'm using it as a truck. And I want to take the steps to make sure it lasts as long as I can, also because I can't afford another one. But, you know, it's used as a truck. So hopefully my analogies weren't stupid and they made sense. Um, I think if you have a really awesome CRT that you like using, you know, let it be your workhorse. Just take some steps to make sure that, you know, it, it lasts as long as you can. Also do something like occasionally carefully pop the back off in any way. You know, remember, you could die working on CRTs, so don't stick your hand in there. But shine a flashlight in. See if you have leaky capacitors. See if something looks way off. Is there a frayed wire about to touch a metal side? Something. And just little things like that will help preserve it a long way. Um, but so, yeah, much longer answer to your question than you probably expected, but I just wanted to share my thoughts on that because I'd rather uh, over-explain than not, than not be complete and kind of leave people guessing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Tiago Santos is currently running a 3-to-1 component cable switcher for their PlayStation 2, Xbox, and Wii. And they're struggling a bit with interference. More specifically, there's been diagonal shadow lines going left to right across the screen. Sometimes they're very visible, and other times they're almost completely gone. 
and it's annoying, but not the end of the world, as they're hard to notice at a normal viewing distance. So that makes them wonder, besides the quality of the cable, which are admittedly not the best, they're wondering what other compounding issues might be causing interference. For, for instance, they have a Wi-Fi router right next to the component switcher. Can that add further noise to the signal? And more generally, are there any less obvious good practices that one should follow to reduce noise and interference? Uh, all excellent questions. I think I know the answer to this, but I'm going to start with the super easy one. Turn on your stuff, wait till you see the lines, and then unplug everything else other than your TV, your console, and the switcher if it's powered. And do the lines disappear? Do they get dimmer? If that's the case, then yeah, maybe your Wi-Fi router is causing interference, or maybe something else around it is. I don't think that's the answer, but that's just about the easiest test you could possibly run. So I would start with that just in case you can get lucky. And if that's it, just move your router to something above or the other side of the room or whatever. But what I think this is, is unshielded cables and a cheap switch that's routed in a way that's almost like being unshielded anyway. That's what my gut's telling me because I've run into this before. However, I have run into the exact same situation using shielded cables, and I think it might have been power. Now, I, I can't go back in time and double check the setup. Maybe they weren't shielded cables. Maybe I grabbed accidentally my generic brand Wii cables and not the Nintendo branded shielded ones. Or maybe I was running through some crappy component switch. Like I used to have a Radio Shack brand one. Um, so maybe I, that was the cause of the issue. But power could be it as well. So I think the next steps are first and foremost... Plug one of those consoles, whichever one gives you the most trouble, directly into your TV. Do you still see the interference? If you do, just because it's free, try doing something like grab an extension cable from around your house and plug your TV into one outlet and your, your Wii into the other. And then vice versa, plug them into the exact same outlet, even if you use one of those plug adapters where you could use plug two into one and, and skip any power strip or anything like that. It's not usually power, but it's probably free to test because most people have an extension cord or one of those little power adapters where you could plug multiple things into one. So I would say do that just because it's free and you probably have it. But what I think you're going to end up needing is some shielded cables for each of your console. Luckily, HD Retrovision makes PS2 and Wii ones. I'll leave links to that both for Castlemania and for Amazon. And for Xbox, um, I would start with your favorite console, PS2 or, or Wii, pick which one of those you like better, buy that one, and then do some other testing. Plug the shielded cables directly into your TV. Does that work? Great. If, if not, then check back, because we'll have to figure something else out. But if that works, great. Then plug it into the Switch. If suddenly you get more interference, then buy some HD Retrovision RCA to RCAs. So use the, the connection that's going from the switch to the TV. If you still get interference, you're going to need a new switch. But I would do it one at a time, or if shipping's really expensive, uh, I guess you could just... Buying shielded cables is never a bad decision. Maybe you don't have all the money right away, but you know if shipping's an issue, then I would pick up uh, the PS2 two Wii cables and just the, the standard HD Retrovision RCA to RCAs, and then pick up, uh, I believe it's Consoles for You. I'm really sorry, Jan, if I got that wrong, but I believe Consoles for You has the adapter for 
so you can plug a Wii component video cable into an original Xbox. So you'd be able to, to use all of those. Um, and depending on where you're located, check consoles for you, check Castlemania, check Amazon, and that way you could just pick whatever one ships to you the quickest. Um, rather than rather than leave links to a store that might not be near you, I'm just going to politely suggest going to Retro RGB. Click on these consoles and look at the links there because it's just much easier than trying to post a million links in uh, in one of these videos. But I think that's kind of all of the things you should test in the order you should test. If you happen to just get a big paycheck and you don't want to mess around with all that testing, just skip to the end, pick up all those shielded cables and see what happens. Uh, and if you still get some interference, upgrade to a G-Comp switch and buy a power conditioner. Uh, but if you want to save some money and test things one thing at a time, just listen to this and kind of go down the route that I suggested. I always like to say the free things first because I always like to, it makes me happy if I could save people money. But if if time is more important to you than money, then just go buy all that stuff. Uh, it's probably less than 100 bucks for the cables plus the G-Comp switch. And then and I think it's 60 or 70 for the power conditioner. So... It's not cheap if you wanted to upgrade the entire setup, which is why I suggested the free stuff first. Adam Adamant said they gave a modded Dreamcast to a friend that has a mode in it. They also gave him an Akura from the Behar brothers so he could play it on his TV. So here's the question. Is there something that could be done to run games that are not VGA mode compatible on a 4K TV with the Akura and the mode? They figured out that patchable games can run on the mode when the option to force 480p is on, but not the non-VGA compatible games. The page for the Acura mentioned switching the RGB to VGA switch and boot after the beep. Unfortunately, the mode doesn't beep, so if this is applicable, when do I do it? Going off of memory, and I have not done this since I did the last Dreamcast, uh, the DC Digital video, but I think you look at the boot screen, as soon as you get the first boot screen switch it. So I don't remember if it's on the first boot screen or if it's as soon as it disappears before the other one pops up. I think it's the second one. I think it's as soon as the first boot screen disappears. But you might want to reference both of the Dreamcast videos I have just to show that trick. Um, and you might have some other things cleared up there as well. But that should do it for those. Unfortunately, though, there are some games that cannot support 480p, whether it's patched, the Switch trick, whatever else, and you're kind of just stuck. And I don't think anybody has figured out exactly why. Uh, I vaguely remember reaching out to one of the famous Dreamcast um, ROM hackers to ask about that. And I don't think, I, I think they basically were like, no, it's not going to work. So I should probably reach back out to more of the people that I've gotten to know. And I think the only solution would really, the only game solution would really be something like um, a fully patched game where that might be really complicated. But you asked, is there a better solution down the pipeline, like connecting the Dreamcast to a RetroTINK 5X? Yeah, you can get a Retro Access Dreamcast cable right now with a, well, if they're in stock, remember it's a global part shortage, uh, that has a 31 15 kilohertz switch that works perfectly through the RetroTINK 5X. Uh, you could access all modes and things that are 480i get motion adaptive deinterlaced. Um, the HD RetroVision cables are coming out. I, I, I don't know. I, I gave up trying to ask. I love those guys, but who knows? Um, and Rob from Retro Gaming Cables has a design that he's been working on for a while that had some issues, and I think it's all cleared up. Uh, once again, part shortage, so Rob's having trouble getting that 
finished off. But as soon as that's available, I messaged Rob, told him I wanted to buy one and do a review. And I've known Rob for years, so I'm sure he'll send one over as soon as they're ready and let me buy one early. Um, but as long as the cables are shielded and as long as the, uh, the conversion is done right, it should be a totally fine solution. And for whatever reason, if you needed a component right now, you could always just get the retro access one and the retro tink RGB to comp. Um, but I mean, that's, that's a lot of money to spend just to get component. So I, I would respectfully to both of those. I, I like both of those products. If you had to pick one, I would sell the Acura, buy a retro tink 5X and buy the retro access cable, assuming you can get all of them today. I'm not sure the status of those. Um, but honestly, there aren't a ton of games that don't access 480p. So I would, I guess I should have started with this. My apologies. Step one should be to look up a list of Dreamcast games that cannot be forced to 480p no matter what and see if those games are important to you. If not, don't even worry about it or, or important to your friend. But uh, if so, then then go back and, and take the advice that I gave before that. Oliver Clare just got 3D drawings back from the architect of the house they're building, and they also did a mock-up of the gaming room complete with CRTs. The room looks pretty great, but it's not 100% of the way there quite yet, and they were wondering if I knew of any forums or discords where they might be able to get some feedback on people who already have these multi-console type of setups. Uh, so first of all, that's awesome. Um, that, that is really cool that you're getting the ability to do that. The bad news is that I don't know anybody else who has had an architect build a house and design a room for CRTs like this today. So I don't know anybody else that you might want to, you might be able to talk to for that. But I absolutely can give some tips. Um, of course, the Retro RGB Discord is always a good place, and there's some awesome people hanging out in there. I don't like to, respectfully, I don't like to uh, promote anybody else's forum, Discord, whatever else, because I just, a lot of them, go downhill really quickly. So I don't want to feel responsible for sending somebody into a shit show. But there are good places out there. It just, uh, you know, it depends on the day of the week sometimes. But I can give some tips from my years of doing crap like that. And the number one thing is make sure you have some kind of access to the back of your CRT. When I used to do high-end home theater, home audio installations in the mid-2000s, yes, I've lived a weird life and done a bunch of weird things, but one of the things that we did was if there was an adjacent room to wherever the CRT was, especially if it was something like a storage room or a laundry room, we would basically build in like a cabinet. So you go into the laundry room, you like, you know, you move your laundry baskets aside, you open up the doors, and there's the back of your CRTs. So everything could be pretty flush, everything could be built nice, you don't have to shimmy and squeeze back there, which I gotta post a video of what it looks like when I do that. It's gotta be like, fat guy stuck behind monitor thing, like I think it'd be hilarious, but it's it works for me. But if you're building a house around this, you could look into stuff like that. You could also look into, um, I don't know what they call them around the world, but the nickname in America is a Lazy Susan. It's basically just a round thing that spins. In my office and in a couple other places, I put the main test monitor I had in a corner on one of those. And every and I kind of routed the wires around. And every time I needed access to the back for you know things I don't use that often, I would just spin it. No lifting a heavy CRT, no messing with anything. And you could, uh, especially if you're having a builder build you something like that, you could absolutely have the weight distributed properly so that you could do that. Um, anybody else know what they're called, by the way? 
rotary spinners. I've called them spinners and lazy Susans. And no disrespect to anybody named Susan. I just that's that's the name it was always called here, where at least around where I grew up. So any way to get access to all of that is definitely a plus. And then of course, talk to your electrician. And if you're going to do something crazy with a bunch of monitors, have two separate runs come from your your circuit breaker box at least. You could say that's overkill, but if you're building a house and you're going to be running these wires when it's still framed, it's like a couple of bucks extra worth of work as opposed to a completely built house. Like if I wanted to run new power lines now to that, it would be a lot of work, a lot of drilling, a lot of cutting, repainting, and a lot of money. Whereas if you just need to run another wire and another outlet, I would do that now. And I I would go overboard. I would put two or three and, you know, make sure that each one has its own special power protection or something, because the cost of doing it now when the walls are still open, so much cheaper. Same thing with networking. I would also run Cat Cat 6 cable that's rated for 2.5 gig Ethernet or try to find cable that's rated for 10 gig. And not only would I run the cable, I would have them run pull lines with that so that if you... 10, 15 years from now want to upgrade, you don't have to, you don't have to tear any walls apart. You could basically just fish the pull cable through and have another cable come through it instead. So basically anything that's easier to do before there's walls up, I would do it. And I would go a little overboard knowing that the total extra cost is going to be so minimal compared to everything else. And more importantly, compared to what it would cost after the house was built. So that's just kind of my thoughts on it. I think I've talked a little more than I should have on it just because I'm really excited at the thought of what I would do to this place if like, you know, if a meteor hit it and I got to rebuild it from scratch. It would basically be the same house that I already bought, but just a little different and a few little things exactly like what I'm just talking about here. So good luck with the house. That's pretty awesome. And hopefully my tips pointed you a little bit in the right direction. And feel free, of course, to message if you have any other questions about that. Jason Guffey wants to know, if they're not supposed to be inhaling the fumes of burning flux directly, why do they make it smell so good? Strangely enough, why does it make me feel so much prettier when I breathe it in, too? All kidding aside, um, Jason posted a silly joke, but I did want to address it both because it made me smile and because I did want to do a polite reminder of making sure that everybody exhausts any of the fumes away from them when they're soldering. One of the things that Voltar and I talked about is how we both do this weird thing where we'll take a deep breath and then exhale as we're soldering. We don't even know we're doing it anymore. It's just us blowing the fumes away. But that's only one step of it. While that does work, and while it is kind of funny that we both do that, you also need to get the fumes away from you. Because if you're spending an hour and a half doing that, they're just going to collect around you. So one of the easiest ways is if you're near a window, use a window fan, set it to exhaust mode. Um, If you are on the opposite side of the room of a window, you could still do that, but you would need another device that... uh, Hold on, sorry for anybody listening to audio only. I just want to share this one again. My buddy John made this for me a while back that I wanted to show everybody. This is the Voltar Sucks 3101, because nobody sucks quite like Voltar. But this is basically it. This is uh, a 3D printed device that my friend made with a fan that uh, you put it in front of wherever it is that you're soldering. It sucks the fumes through the filter, blows them out the back. So you could just aim this across the room. Uh, You could 
you could just use a regular fan. I have a USB powered fan that I use as well. So you could clip that to your desk. I'll leave a link for that because I don't think John sells the Voltar sucks. I wish he did. I wish Voltar did. Um, but yeah, like you could use a USB clip fan, vent the, the fumes away from you and then vent them towards an open window with an exhaust fan in the window. Um, that would absolutely work. Of course, being next to a window is even better. Like my setup in New York was, um, I'm, stuck in a corner now so i do use the the double fan trick but but yeah thanks for the funny joke but i did actually want to address that because that is a question that comes up all the time what to do about fumes and stuff like that and definitely don't breathe them in intentionally <laughs> well that's it for this time as always thanks to everybody who participates in these and if you want to ask a question ask wherever it is you support in the latest q a post the way these services work, I can't figure out what's a new question on an old post, and I really just like scrolling through in real time like I did today. Uh, unfortunately, that does mean very often I forget what it is that I talked about because I'm doing it all off the cuff with no preparation or follow-up, so that's why I get questions like Dan's today where I wasn't quite sure what they were talking about, but I went back and checked, so always add a little bit of context if you don't mind, but even if you don't, I'll figure it out, or I'll give you a really stupid answer, which might at least make you laugh. I don't know. I'm fine with both. But anyway, thank you very much to anybody who supports in any way possible, because it is you who's keeping all of this going. So thank you all so much, and I'll see you next week.